as we move on in our study. Chapter three is one of those felt stories. I've kind of made this a premise that um, in my experience, uh, a lot of my generation's experience with the Adventist church in the book of Daniel is that they're either felt stories or they're prophecy stories and we don't care a whole lot about what's in between. Those of us who are interested in the prophecy, it's been a long time, long, long time since we were in cradle roll in the felts and the three princes, the three nobles in the fiery furnace, that's one of those felt stories. What more is there to learn than what we learned in cradle roll from Daniel 3? In our rush to the zoo, we don't give it much thought And like I said, we already covered it. And there may have been some of us who were blessed to teach Cradle Roll. So uh, we're even more blessed. We know all about Daniel 3 and we don't need much more. Well, maybe we won't want to if you really dig in. Maybe we've avoided chapter 3 because there's a lot of stuff in here that we would rather not think about. Have you ever really met these three noble, young, Jewish, Israeli princes? exiled in Babylon. See, Israel was warned for generations, and yet when it happened, it seemed like it was overnight. All of a sudden, they found themselves in a land where everything that was once right to them is now wrong, and all that they believe to be wrong is right in this land. Most Israel has to work in this place. Jeremiah commanded them that they would build their own houses and have their own place. Most have not had that experience yet. They're being forced to work. And they're building buildings and they're making weapons. In the evening, it might be the only time that these working fathers and sons are gathered. And they gather by the river. Psalm 130 laments this. By the rivers of Babylon we have gathered And we get teased and we get taunted by the Babylonian worshipers of that little God-man king over in the temple. Sing us a song of Israel and how can we praise God in a holy land? They've taken their instruments of worship and they've hung them in the eucalyptus trees by the rivers of Babylon. It's just them. Why is it just them, these workers? Well, when they came first, they begin to separate before they begin to take them from the home. They've already separated the physicians. They put the physicians in the field. They're with the armies. They're there out there caring for the conqueror's soldiers. The daughters, I don't even want to think about. But their daughters were taken to, uh, to be given to other soldiers, to be given to other Babylonian men, to uh, be evaluated as their breeding stock. The wives and the mothers, most of them never made it. Soldiers will have them until they tire of them. The babies, those are just useless mouths to feed, far too long to be of any use to them. If you look at Psalm 137, it's actually a retaliation against Babylon because of what they did to their babies. Verse eight in Psalm 137 says, O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash their skulls against the rocks. Our elders... They worked them as long as they could. 
They died shortly after getting here. And anyone left physically challenged, they killed back home in the siege or they just left them there to starve. That leaves the priests, the Levites, and the royalty, the relatives of this King Joachim who is in power and the, and the royal family. The priests were seen as already defiled because they worship this defeated God, this God that Nebuchadnezzar already defeated. So they're useless, they're executed. The Levites, they have nothing to do. All of the objects of royalty that the Levites took care of back home in the temple has been placed in the temple in Shinar. They have nothing to do. They're useless. That leaves these young princes. That leaves these four kids. When I say kids, I, they might be as old as 17, but they're more likely between 12 and 14. As soon as Nebuchadnezzar got a hold of them, we read about them in chapter one, and, and he's uh, training them to be advisors. He's training them to be fortune tellers and being able to read the stars and everything else. And they've already had to prove themselves with the help of Daniel once. But as soon as they got there, before Nebuchadnezzar even began, he made them all eunuchs. Don't want them uh, believing that they're superior and maybe, maybe, taking one of the uh, ladies from the harem that Nebuchadnezzar did. So they made them all eunuchs. Can you say that they were castrated on Sabbath morning? So these kids, they're left raw. They're left alone and without their God. So I thought you should know something a little about these kids before we open up their story in Daniel 3. Before we begin this story that we think is familiar to us, that we think we know all, it, all we need to know about the worship of this living God. I just wanted you to meet them. These Babylonian princes in training. These Jewish princes by birth. But they're about to go to war, worshiped and armed with nothing. Absolutely nothing especially as far as traditional thinking that we would think they would give us when we think of what we need to make a right and true decision about who to worship and why. Try again. We've been given nothing but trouble here. There we go. I don't know if that was me or not. Verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits, whose width was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent for the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to assemble to come to the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Remember chapter two ends with Daniel explaining the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in the dream. It's funny though, as soon as the interpretation got to king, you are the head of gold, it's almost like Nebuchadnezzar quit listening. He didn't need to hear the rest. 
He's this little man God. He's a God now. He could will what he wants to will to happen. So if I just, he heard that there were other nations to come. He heard that Babylon was eventually going to get defeated, but those nations were lesser than he was. So he thinks he'll take control of this. The divine part of him, the God part of him, thinks that if he builds the statue and makes it all of gold, well, then nothing Daniel said after the head of gold is going to come true. He's going to take control. So he makes this statue 90 feet high, nine feet wide. And the argument is whether or not he really made it of solid gold. I, I got no problem believing that. Remember, Babylon is filled with gold. They got gold coming out of their ears. And it says the dedication, and then he invites everybody to the dedication of this statue. That Bible word dedication, that Hebrew word dedication is always used in relation to an altar or to the temple itself. It is always constructed about uh, dedicating something that is going to be used in the worship of God. Daniel told him there were nations to come after the kingdom of gold, but Nebuchadnezzar says, no, I'll prescribe worship. I'm the God here. And so he dedicates this statue all to be worshiped. He's God now. And by the way, I don't go too far in the story without having to admit that on this planet and sometimes even in our minds, that if we don't think about it, Nebuchadnezzar is everything we look for in divinity. All powerful, the power to completely enforce his will. A lot of people only look at God that way. Why is he God? Because he can completely enforce his will. And then we have the nerve and the gall to try to tell people what his will is and what he's going to force them to do. It hits a little too close to home that Nebuchadnezzar was able to tell all of Babylon that he was God and be able to prescribe worship of him. And he'll give an exact description. So all of these governors, all the leaders of, of Babylon that come together, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. When they were standing before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the herald proclaimed, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. You are all commanded. They're brought together. You are compelled. And when it says there that you are commanded and compelled, that you are to fall down, if you will. And I, I skipped verse five on purpose because, Grady, you're gonna have to help me, man. I can't, this isn't working. I skipped it on purpose just to be able to, uh, to, to show you what happens in verse six, what he says would happen, and I can't. Verse six said, whoever does not fall down in worship. So in verse five, he says, you will fall down in worship when? 
When I give the signal, he says, when the signal is given, every one of you will fall down. Again, it's the same word used in prostration. At the end of the, at the, end of the uh, interpretation of the dream in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar fell down at that moment. He fell down before Daniel and he proclaimed Daniel is God. He didn't mean it, but he proclaimed it at that particular moment. It is the same word here. You're all to fall down prostate. It is a, a sign of ancient worship. They literally fell down, laid on their faces. If you saw somebody like that, you would say, he's in worship right now. The same way that if, if you're sitting in church and someone's got their eyes closed, oh, well, in this church, we may not, in this church, it just means that we might be taking a nap. But, uh, in a lot of other churches, in a place where, you know, maybe the head's bobbing, maybe hands are, are, are crossed or something, you would say, he's praying, he's worshiping. In order to do that in ancient Babylon, you fell down flat on your face. And you said, that guy is worshiping. That's it. Nebuchadnezzar has usurped God. And he's able to prescribe worship of a heavenly God here on earth. The commentators put it this way, a movement from below that soars up to claim divine glory and prerogatives. Man-made worship of a man-made God. Nations and men of every language, the whole world, all commanded to do one thing and do it together. When you think of everybody, one language, all nations, all for one purpose, what's the one story you think of? The last time they were this united was the Tower of Babel. And they just happened to be in the same place where the Tower of Babel was built. Nebuchadnezzar believes he could bring all of that back. By the way, was that true worship of God? It was man trying to take control of, of God in order to be able to worship him. Build the tower all the way to heaven and we can do something about this. That's the way men worship God. That's the way the world worships God. We don't worship until we know we're in control. And we're always looking to make control. Fundamental trait of the religion of Babylon, of the religion of Babel, number one fundamental trait is that it does not tolerate diversity. Nebuchadnezzar builds the statue as a way to test his followers' loyalty. He is not going to tolerate any deviation. I gave you the exact prescription of what it means to worship this statue, which is me, and I won't accept anything else. Think about it. It's the world teaches us from Nebuchadnezzar to Louis XIV to Hitler to Stalin to Pol Pot. When unity is the only goal, then any difference is looked upon with suspicion and must be eliminated. How? With violence. And that was what we had in that other verse. <laughs> I think what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna read to you, all right? If you wanna take your Bibles out, because I think, I think our, our computer has truly failed us today. All right. And it's the computer. It's not Grady. It's not me. It's not Gilbert. It's just the computer, just the way it is. All right? 
He does it with violence. Verse six says, whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. The religion of Babylon is not reflection. It's not choice. It's not the expression of a faith or a deep religious experience. It's one that somebody forces you to do. Someone who has the worldly power to be able to enforce it. It's forced by a few things in order to enforce What does he want? Verse five, at the moment that you hear of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, you must entire, and the entire music ensemble, you are to fall down, worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And what does he do to elicit, if you will, what does he do to elicit or aid this worship? What's the one thing he's going to use? You can say it. Even in front of Ben and Helen and Sharon and and Melinda, you can say it. Music. And in some churches, all I have to do is say the word music and a chill goes up everyone's spine. Is there anything that has divided our church more than our opinions of music? Not so much here, which kind of surprised me at all the other things that divided us, that music really wasn't one of them. Yay, us. One of the first times I ever heard a passage, uh, heard this passage being taken off the felts and actually preached in front of adults was one of those weekend seminars. One of those uh, people that come who claim to be an expert on music and what it can do, and an expert on the only music that should be considered uh, uh, proper, if you will, for church. And he was convinced, absolutely convinced, that he knew exactly what this music sounded like. He told us what that music sounded like. He said, I know that somehow those were electric guitars. And if, and if Nebuchadnezzar can use a rock and roll band to get you to worship a Babylonian god, and if it's Babylon that we're called to get out of, then all you have to do to come out of Babylon and avoid it is to quit listening to rock and roll. That was there, one of our churches. And I always remember that my, my professor, my one of my Old Testament professors was in that church and I happened to be sitting beside him. And when he worshiped, if, if the preacher was preaching from somewhere in New Testament, he read from his Greek New Testament. If it was somewhere in the Old Testament, he had his Hebrew open. And I just leaned over and he had it open to Daniel 3 and I leaned over and I go, does the Hebrew really say that? And he just kind of went. There wasn't a Hebrew word for electric guitar. So I'm trying to make a point. One is, if you try to make the text say something it doesn't, then it detracts from a very good point. And a very good point that we can even learn from this story right here is that music can be used to elicit a a beautiful spiritual experience and response. It's why we do it. Amen? How many here can be elevated by something that these people that have this talent that God has given them, all of our ministers of music, how many of us have been elevated to a spiritual plane? It's why God said music can be used. 
And we belittle it when we try to make scripture sound like that it's something. By the way, the only way to be able to bring about this unity that Nebuchadnezzar is looking for, he's gonna have to mess with, uh, with um, uh, our text. He's gonna have to mess with it. Because like I said, it may be a ridiculous uh, um, uh, example that, that electric guitars were not in the Bible, but we have to mess with the text if we're gonna try to make our modern worship look unified. And to try to say that we know the definition of what music should be used in church and what should be not. Making the scripture say something that it doesn't can lead to all sorts of destructive behavior and be used as an effective tool to bring about that false unity. Singers and musicians, just remember, you have a tremendous power over us adoring congregations. How many here trust our musicians? How many here trust our worship leaders to take us nowhere but the throne of God? There you go. They have their hands raised. You guys can't see them. By the way, it's not about the instruments themselves. I read you one. The New American Standard says horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe. There were bagpipes back then. And really, all we're trying to do is that we really don't know. New Living Translation, the horn, the flute, the zither. I like that one. That's my favorite because I had a cousin who had a zither, okay? And I just kind of, <laughs> I kind of like that the zither might have been all the way back in ancient worship. I kind of like that. But the zither, the lyre, the harp, and the pipes. All we know is this, okay? Three wind and three stringed instruments. That's all we know. We don't know what they looked like. We don't know what they were. No one's ever uncovered them. Are you with me? Three stringed, three wind. By the way, all used by Babylon. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, well, let's just eliminate those. Let's just eliminate those. Three wind and three string. Guess what? You're left now with no instruments. Because you think the only stringed instruments are guitar? You ever looked inside this thing? How many strings are in here, Ben? It's all strings, isn't it? And wind, how do you make an organ? You blow wind through pipes. It isn't about the instruments. By the way, guess what Babylon doesn't use to elicit false worship? Drums. But guess who uses drums or percussion to elicit worship of the true God, Israel. In fact, I'll find you three places in the, in, in, uh, in the Old Testament that command you to worship with percussion instruments. And by the way, all of these instruments that are being used here in Babylon, I can find them being used in the worship of God too. It isn't the instruments, it's the purpose. Why are they being used? Because they're powerful tools. Powerful tools when God gives somebody the talent to be able to play one of these. I can't make the scripture say something it doesn't say, I'm sorry. We don't have a prescription. And don't let anybody ever tell you they do. You'll save some money because those people make a lot of money trying to convince people that they know.
So what keeps us from being comfortable with that? Why are we so uncomfortable with that? It's not anything based on what God wants, but what who wants? But what I want. I want control over my worship. The most passive-aggressive thing I've ever heard about worship in church is, <laughs> he robbed me of my blessing. Why? Because he played an instrument that didn't need to be played. He played an instrument that is forbidden. He, he wasn't eloquent enough in his scripture. They don't play well enough. They don't play the music that feeds me. I want to be in control. I'll pick the music that I like. I'll pick the music that takes me to the throne. And between Babylon and Jerusalem, which one do we sound like more there? Babylon. It's chosen for us. Nebuchadnezzar is the one that chooses and prescribes. What we want, and we want it now, and the reason that we want it now, we don't want to see the context. We don't want to see how, how some instruments became sacred in the church and other instruments were condemned as instruments of the devil. None of us want to confront that. It takes too long, and we might have to come to a conclusion that I might be wrong. So I'm going to stay now. I'm going to stay in the here and now, and I want it, and I want it what? Now. Now. And I will not tolerate any deviation or difference. Who do we sound like there? We sound just like Nebuchadnezzar, don't we? See, using force and repetition and using music selfishly for its own purpose, it's violent. It's a violent act. It's an intolerant act. It has nothing to do with worship of the true and living God. It's totalitarian, it's mechanical. The religion of Babel also focuses on the right now. By the way, it's also very difficult and irritating to read because once he comes up with this list right here, he repeats it at least four times. Everyone repeats it. It's, it's, really, it's really irritating. The moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that the king has set up. In verse seven, it says, therefore, as soon as they heard the sound, the music starts, and as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. He continues to list the music, he continues to list everyone who worshiped it, and he continues to list it every time, word for word, any time that it comes up. What's Daniel trying to tell us about this prescription? That everybody's on board, and nobody is going to deviate, because we all know what's, what happens if we don't. When the report comes to him that these three young Hebrew princes are the only ones left standing in this huge, you know, huge crowd out there, that these three kids are the only ones that didn't do it, I picture it. They stood up, stayed standing, and turned their backs. When the report comes to him 
They want to know. They want to tell the king. They says, your majesty issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, uh, this is verse 10, by the way, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. Man, it is tedious, isn't it? But the guys that came back, they need Nebuchadnezzar to know that they're on board and that this didn't happen because we gave them the wrong instructions. So the music starts. Nebuchadnezzar thought he had a total conformity, but he didn't. The report came to him. You made the decree that whoever does not fall down in worship will be thrown into the furnace. And then they give him the report. There are certain Jews who have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. <laughs> That's funny. There's another passive-aggressive way. There's these certain Jews, and guess what? You appointed them. We're going to learn as, as, as Daniel goes on uh, that uh, these Jews are not particularly liked in the nation of Babylon. But namely, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. There they are, our three Israeli princes, armed with nothing but ready to go to battle. Remember their Jewish names, uh, Shadrach's was Hananiah, God has been gracious. Meshach's was Michelle, who is what God is, who is like God, if you will. Abednego was Azariah, God has helped. The only thing they're armed with was what God identified them when he created them. And he promised them that I'm gracious and there is no one like me and I have helped. How does that help them now? I believe it's because they remember who they were. They remember who they are. And they've decided they're not gonna listen to this little God king. Then Nebuchadnezzar, furious in rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in so that those men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and you do not worship the golden statue that I've set up? Is it true? Just tell me, I must be hearing things. You must have misunderstood. You didn't get the instructions. So he gives them back to them. And listen to the way that he gives them back to them. He gives them back to them exactly as it was given out. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? What God, especially your God, where was your God when I took you captive? Where was your God when I marched all the way into his temple and took all of his things? Where was your God when I took your manhood from you? I'm your God now. And notice when to be delivered, here and what? And now. Babylonian worship happens here and now because it's only for the here and the now. It's only for while we still have the power on earth to do this. 
And then it happens. Three teenagers look at this little man God and they say, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. We're not going to defend ourselves. We don't see any need to. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. Is he able? Do the kids know he's able? But they also know that he may not, right? It's not about God's ability. It's about what God wills at this moment. He's in charge of this moment. I'm not. They're looking to something else. The Babylonian worshipers are looking to how it looks now. Why? Because right now is the only power that the little man God has. Right now is the only power that the little horn and the both beasts have. Right now is all they've got. They are going to exercise it while they still have it. The citizens of the kingdom of heaven, though, they, they're not concerned with right now. They're not concerned with it. They know that God is in charge right now. Whatever happens happens. But if not, they say, if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the golden image that you have set up. The religion of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, like I said, it's for right now. The Jews go further, though. If, if you are ready, Nebuchadnezzar says. They say, if God is ready, that if introduces immediate death. They come up with the if that raises the risk of faith and moves further beyond the bonds of the near future. I don't know. My conscience may be singed. But to me, when it comes to worship, when it comes to our public worship, why are we concerned about right now? We swear that right now we can't experiment with, say, another instrument. We swear that right now we can't experiment with the way that we do worship. Why are we so concerned about right now? If it works, it works. And if it doesn't, what? It doesn't. And again, it wouldn't bother me if we didn't hurt people in the process. Babylon, the religion of mechanical cause and effect, only right now, if you don't, immediately you will be thrown into the furnace. But these Jews, these Jewish princes, they testify of a living religion of grace and liberty with a living God. If he does not, O king. He's God. He's got free will, O king. He can do whatever he wants. He might deliver me, he may not. But let me tell you this, it isn't going to affect my decision right now. I will not worship whatever image you put down. And here's the difference between idolatry and the religion of Israel. Idolatry is a religion fashioned in humanity's image. The worshiper manipulates the image to bless or to curse automatically. It has to happen right now. 
The religion of Israel is a revelation from above, a living God that we can establish a personal relationship that not only implies an exchange of love, but also of questions. Can you, will you deliver me right now? God says, maybe, maybe not. But will you trust me with that decision? These three teenagers raise their hand and say, I'm all in. That's why when this God does not save, even if he does not bless, even if he does not heal or cure, the Hebrew can remain faithful. Why? Because theirs is a future in the hands of a living God. A hope. An eternity. That's why I'm saying is sometimes our own religion can resemble Babylon more than Israel. Treat God like a vending machine. Demand blessing here and now. Bring it home. Pay tithe. Why? Because God will bless you. When? Right now. Practice good health. Live to be 102. Have it all together. When? Right now. Or maybe only 60 years into the future. Pray. Say the right words, pray the right time, put in the right amount, always pray in Jesus' name and you'll be healed every time. When? Right now. We will worship our own way because we want to be blessed right now. We want to become so perfect that God will have to save us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego proved to us how wrong all of that is. Their sole preoccupation was to serve and adore God. It was no longer about them. It was about the God we serve. This God, they knew, loved them, and was more, capable, more than capable to deliver them, but they also trusted him as the giver of life and the ruler of death. It says, it goes on, verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary and ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, and other garments. They were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was so overheated, the raging flames even killed the men who had lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Nebuchadnezzar, yes, he's wound a little tight. Don't you think? He's wound a little tight but he's so sure that he's in complete control. Something that he always pictured that a God is. A God is in control. Why does anybody want to be God? Why does anybody want to be like God? Because we want to be in control. I wish I had control over my mouth right now. Why he feels he can force them to worship his image, but the one thing force cannot do 
The one thing force cannot do is that it can infringe, it cannot infringe on the worship of the living God. And in 2,000 years of Christian history, especially the first couple of hundred, there is martyr after martyr after martyr who has proved it to us. Martyrs whose blood right now through the alt, uh, under the altar in heaven cry out, how long, O oh Lord? How much longer are martyrs going to be needed? Do we even have enough blood to shed? King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, was it not three men we threw bound into the fire? They answered, true, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. I thought I was divine. Nebuchadnezzar gets his first glimpse of what divinity really is. See, they have only two things. They have each other, and they have this God who knows who they are. Their friend Daniel, more importantly, Daniel, what Daniel taught them in, back in chapter two is that their God is still present even though all the indications are that he is absent, that they've been defeated, and that, they, that they're gone. When they were tossed into the fire, he says there was only four. At that moment right there, did they feel the presence of God? I'm saying yes, but did they have any evidence of the presence of God? All they had was each other. All they had was the trust that got them thrown in there in the first place. He may look absent, he may look defeated, he may look gone, he may be silent. But Jesus said, don't take them out of the world. Keep them from the evil one and let them know that we are still there. We're not, we're not supposed to be asking to be protected from imminent death or sickness or, or persecution or, or anything from this world. We're only to acknowledge that we go through the same things that other humans go through except we do not go through it alone. which is why I believe, truly believe, that real worship, real witness, truly uh, spreading the love of God is to let them know that they're not alone. And how do we do that? By being with them. Worship's not in the atmosphere. It's not in the props. And I'm sorry, guys, it's not even really in the music. Because all of that can be instigated, it could be manipulated, it could be castigated by man. But knowing by faith that God is not in the box, that he's in the furnace. That he's present, ever present. All the Israeli princes had was the presence of God and their friend Daniel. The very presence of God waiting for them. And where was he? He was in the furnace. 
Maybe the one thing that captivity was supposed to teach them is that when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and brings everything over and puts it in the land of Shinar, including what he said was his throne, the Ark of the Covenant, thrown in the land of Shinar, maybe what he wanted to teach Israel was this. Because once they get to Israel, they have two prophetic voices speaking to them. Ezekiel and Daniel, they're not left alone. And, 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 and the purist or the literalist, the one who takes it literally could say, God is not with us, we're not with God at all because number one, we're not in the land and we saw the temple destroyed. When they threw that ark, when they threw his throne into the land of Shinar, into Nebuchadnezzar's temple, they threw God in there. And maybe what God tells them as soon as, and, 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 and Ezekiel is especially impressive because Ezekiel, you immediately see God's throne moving with wheels about the earth right with them in their captivity. Maybe the one thing captivity was supposed to to tell them is that you think I'm stuck in that little box, in that little room, in that building back in Jerusalem? But for 2,000 years, what we've been trying to do, we've been trying to stuff him into a box, box that only we can prescribe worship of, box that we're in control of worship of. The box that we say whether or not you can come in contact with the church and in contact with God. And we tell people, well, God can't be with you there because this is going on. God can't go with you there because this is going on. And yet he's with these three princes, where? In the furnace. He decided to leave the throne and be in the furnace with them. In the furnace with them. David says, I can't go anywhere on the planet where I can get away from your Holy Spirit. And we used to teach people that he couldn't follow us into a movie theater. Worship is acknowledging that he's present that he's loosed and walking around with us wherever we are. And that we feel free only in him. They were called to Sinai to be in his presence. And they decided that they would worship him by remote. (laughs) They stuck him in a box. They said only certain people could go in and worship him. But now that temple's in ruins and the box is in Nebuchadnezzar's temple. It's now a monument to man manipulating man. God telling them the box is gone. The temple is gone. But here I am. The old homiletical story is is that the earthly creatures who are in heaven and observing this story They panic. They panic once they see Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego not worshiping because they know what's happening. And they begin to run around and they run to Gabriel and they run to the father right up there and saying, you know what, you gotta do something. I I know what's gonna happen. I I, I used to be down there. I know exactly what's gonna happen. Moses, Enoch, Elijah. Well, Elijah's not not there yet, sorry. (laughs) And they're saying, you gotta do something. Uh, uh, I don't know, um, I don't know how long it took me to get here. <laughs> Enoch's saying, I'm not, I'm not sure how long it took me to get here. I don't, uh, but, but, but send me back. 
I can, I can be there in a certain amount of time. And I, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Gabriel can be there in about 90 seconds. No, 90 seconds, no. Two, three minutes, this thing's gonna be over with. So Father, in order to please Enoch and the others who are observing her are panicked, he sends out a message and he says, anybody, anybody, can you get there? Can you get there and do something before Nebuchadnezzar gets a hold of these boys? And nobody could be there before three minutes. We'll learn in chapter nine that Gabriel can get there in three minutes. And then a voice comes. Father, I'm already here. I'm already here. Let what happens, happens. Let them be with me. And the man God looks in and he says, that fourth one, man, he looks like a son of the gods. And he was. And he is. And he is to come. Our God is able, O King. But even if he doesn't, we won't bow down. The felts are something, aren't they? I'm sorry, sometimes we run past them. Thank you for hanging in there with me. Thank you.